0: Welcome to Tape to Tape, powered by the new Ram 1500 Sport Build, exclusively for Canadians. I'm Ryan Dixon. I'm a writer at sportsnet.ca. Joining me on the other line, as always, my co-host, Rory Boylan. Rory, how you holding up?
1: Holding up just fine, trying to get outside as much as we can here. It's a beautiful day out, so maybe get outside with the kids at the end of the day here. Um, and just, you know, like the rest of us, just waiting and hoping for some newsy developments here so that we know roughly what possibly might be ahead for us as NHL fans, if there's going to be hockey this summer and what that might look like.
0: Well, yeah, it feels like we might be on the precipice of something. Anyways, we're going to get to that. It's also World Cup of Hockey Week at Sportsnet, World Cup of Hockey 2016, that is. We're going to look at One of the most unique teams in the history of international hockey, the under-23 North American squad. Uh, Rory wrote a piece that's up at Sportsnet.ca that uh, identifies who might be on the team now, who would fit that under-23 criteria if there was a World Cup 2020, which sadly there, of course, won't be. Uh, In the aftermath of The Last Dance, the 10-part Michael Jordan documentary you can find on Netflix, we're going to discuss what hockey docs we'd love to see. And that ties in well with our guest this week, Mark Spector, because Mark covers the Edmonton Oilers for sportsnet.ca And I think it's a slam dunk, even though it's been well covered. A lot of us would be glued to an in-depth retelling of the 1980s Oilers dynasty that kind of had some similarities to Jordan's Bulls. And uh, specifically in the fact that it kind of came apart earlier than it should have. We're also going to talk to Mark about a bunch of things related to the Oilers and the fact Edmonton could be a hub city if and when the league gets back up and running. So let's not waste any more time. Let's bring him in right now. Mark, how have the last couple months been free in the Alberta capital?
2: Well, it's, uh, we're doing okay out here. We're, you know, it's, I think I'm like every other writer. We've, we've all gone through a lot of sort of the first ideas that you had, the first wave of ideas of things you could write when there's no games. And then we had a second round and, uh, you know, I worked very closely with Rory and Rory has lots of good ideas. And so we went through all his good ideas <laughs> and now we've been like two months without a hockey game and we're all like, okay, who's got the next idea? <laughs> so it's been actually really cool that we're showing these series on Sportsnet on TV, cause it really does open up, you know, the door to find some interesting tales to tell on the website.
0: Well, we'll get to a bit of those things that you have been writing. Uh, Hopefully, we have something new to cover, um, even just in the form of some actual hard news sooner rather than later. From the word go, there's been a notion that if, in fact, the league goes to a 2014 playoff format with four hub cities, Edmonton would be a good destination for this. We've seen very recently uh, prominent politicians in your city and in that province talking about it. Why is Edmonton identified as a uh, potential spot to host some teams?
2: Well, for a couple of reasons, start with the arena. They've got a, a, obviously an excellent arena, but you know, relatively new, it includes a practice rink. Uh, that is, you know, you dress in the same dressing room and you just take a right instead of a left and you're in the practice rink. So that helps. That helps the teams to stay, quote-unquote, inside the bubble. Uh, there is a, a brand-new JW Marriott straight across the street with, in fact, a walkway over uh, what we call a main road here called Stony Plain Road that goes right into the arena. So maintaining the bubble here uh, is one of the easiest, if not the easiest, I would suggest, uh, in the entire National Hockey League. I can't think of an arena that has an attached practice rink and an attached really big luxury hotel uh, right onto the arena. So that helps. And then outside of that, gentlemen, you know, northern Alberta, the Edmonton Zone, they're calling it, has had a very, very uh, low COVID-19 numbers. So, you know, there's certain places in the NHL that are just ruled out. You're not playing hockey in New York. You're not playing hockey in New Jersey. Um, Edmonton would be the opposite of that. If you were searching the 31 sites for the lightest touch of COVID, you know, affectation, uh, Edmonton would be somewhere near the top of that list as well. And
1: it, it seems like, you know, you're getting support from the politicians there too. The the Premier Jason Kenney at his address, uh, his conference yesterday mentioned the, the Testing was was on its way up. The cases were on its way down, and then the Edmonton Mayor Don Iveson, later that evening tweeted his support for trying to get behind Edmonton to host. And meantime, you know, here in Toronto, our Mayor John Tory was on our radio station last week saying, you know, don't expect sports back in this city until the fall, maybe. And um, so it's not the same everywhere. But it, but it seems like it seems like the COVID situation is. Settling to a point in Edmonton where it's acceptable to have NHL players, and that, and that the politicians are now also getting in on this. Do you know how involved the team is, how, how much progress the team has been making with the league since your last report? I guess that was two or three weeks ago.
2: Yeah, they've been, you know, right since Gary Bettman had a Board of Governors meeting and broke this, uh, you know, relayed this sort of a tentative plan. Uh, they set out the National Hockey League set out a you know almost like a set of criteria that would have to be met by anyone sort of applying it was It was related to me guys like like you know like applying for the an Olympics or something where you have to build a what they call a bid book and display to the people who are going to grant you know the right to hold this thing, which is obviously the n h l head office you have to display a, a, that you can check off every box that they require checking uh, so that, you know, you, you are considered as a potential one of these hub cities. And Edmonton's been slugging away on this thing. They've put their bid book in and they've, you know, that comes back, they've answered all the questions. You know, the I I think it's less a question of whether of the seven NHL cities in Canada, I think it's very clear that if Edmonton's not the best situation, it's right near the top. I mean, there's just no, you know all the things we just talked about exist uh to me the biggest thing is going to be if they spread this thing over one or two countries if they decide they want to do this without dealing with anyone crossing borders uh that means it's either going to be in two canadian cities or two american cities and you know that's something i don't know the answer to i think you could save money if you did it on the canadian dollar would be my expectation But uh, they may open up uh, shop in the States a little more widely and sooner than we do here in Canada.
0: I've been asking most people who've passed through the pod the last little while some version of this question. So I'll throw it at you as well, Spec. What's your gut tell you right now in terms of, you know, hockey returning? I mean, I know there are still so many unknowns out there. and, And to some degree, we are all still um, just taking our best stab at it. But but how do you feel, you know, talking to people in recent times, do you feel like we are a step or two closer to the the potential for this happening?
2: Oh yeah, I I firmly I mean, there's two there's two sides to this question. Uh absolutely for sure the National Hockey League is looking to play hockey, right? They're not gonna take a bunch of risks, but they're looking to play and they're pushing the envelope, they're absolutely preparing as if the time will come sometime this summer that they're going to get green lighted to play hockey. And when that green light goes on, they're going to be ready and they're going to roll out their plan. So if it's up to the hockey people, you bet they're playing. But I think in the end, we'd all agree, gentlemen, that, that you know, this just might be up to the beach goers in South Carolina. It, it just might be up to who opens up their provinces and their bars and their restaurants perhaps too quickly. Because we also know this, the NHL can't make a move until the various health authorities allow that. And if the pandemic fights back here, and if we allow it to regain steam, right, and to to go north instead of its continual gradual downhill fall here, it doesn't matter what Gary Bettman thinks. If the health people won't let them play, they're not playing. Did you watch
0: the Michael Jordan doc with any of your downtime? Oh, yeah. Actually, uh, uh, the only one,
2: I haven't seen the 10th one yet. So don't spoil it for me. <laughs> but I did watch the other night.
0: I mean, Rory and I, we're going to talk about what, what hockey docs we'd love to see. But I do think there's obvious parallels with the 80s Oilers in that, you know, for people who aren't fully up to speed on the Jordan one, you know, it, it, there was a sense that all the the main characters would have been happy to come back and and there was essentially a world where they could have run it back with that bulls team to try and win another title even though jordan was whatever he was 35 at the time i mean with the oilers i mean the circumstances are different but it's even more painful of course because wayne gretzky was 27 years old when he was traded in 88 paul Coffey was already gone they win another cup with uh mark messier at the helm in 1990 but you know my God, if that team had been together for 10 more years, you have to think they would have added three, four more titles. Um, what do you reflect back on? That was a team that just as you were coming up, cutting your teeth, you're recovering, you've gone back and revisited uh, a lot of the, the triumphs of that team, the 87 series. I mean, do you think that would make for compelling viewing? And what kind of sticks with you in terms of what could have been with that squad?
2: You know, first of all, it's a shame you can't rewrite history in terms of you know, in the 2000s, the Oilers, right when they got Taylor Hall and then, you know, started to, what we thought was a rebuild back then, that was a long time ago, they did a thing called Oil Change. And they had cameras following the Oilers in every private place and it off for like three or four years. And they got all this great footage. The problem was it never changed. They were yeah. lousy when the thing started and they were lousy when it got eyewashed. <laughs> <laughs> so, if That's not good had, TV. <laughs> no, it, it never went anywhere, right? If only they'd have had those cameras rolling, you know, back in the '80s. There's an old documentary called "Boys in the Bus," and it was done yes. in one season. Yeah, and it's a lot of fun. If you guys can, anyone can find it out there. It's pretty cool. The attitude we had was, uh, you know, we don't win many games, but we sure have a good time. Boy, oh boy, it, just, it was like a kid in the candy store. Our whole team was like that. Some of the things we did. It's like a, a condensed you know, 80s version of of this Jordan doc. But, um, you know, we don't have the footage, guys. I think what we saw back then, really, is a guy that I was there, you know, I covered the Gretzky trade. Uh, I think what we saw back then was the NHL used to be a small-time, you know, mom-and-pop shop back in the 70s and 80s. And then it broke out, and it started to become a big business. And inside of that, we started to have big markets, and small markets. And Edmonton is never going to be a big market. It's a small market. It was a small market then. And really, we can splice this thing up however we want. That never would have happened to the New York Rangers and the Toronto Maple Leafs. It happened to Edmonton because it's a little place.
1: Um, We've been doing a lot of what-ifs on this podcast, and Ryan's been writing a a weekly what-if scenario on the website. And so in terms of this dynastic Oilers team, you know, after Gretzky gets traded, so they win in 1990 and then they lose in back-to-back conference finals in 1991-92. So in an alternate reality where money is no issue and the Oilers are able to keep the core of players together uh, from their championship teams into the early 1990s, I mean, now we're looking at a situation where it could be... The grizzly veteran Edmonton Oilers against the up-and-coming Pittsburgh Penguins, led by Yager and, and Lemieux, and then you've got veterans on that team as well. But how, how do you think, if the Oilers kept everybody together, how do you think that team would have stacked up against the Lemieux Penguins?
2: Oh, uh, you know, it would have been a ton of fun, I'll give you that. It would have been a ton of fun. Um, that Oilers team, of course, they won five in seven. They won two years in a row, they lost one. They won two years in a row, they lost one. Then they started again. They won in 90, and they went to two conference finals. And by then, they were losing everybody, man. Coffee wasn't there. Gretzky wasn't there. Anderson was gone. You know, they weren't close to the team. So you, had they kept that group, it's a, it's a better, deeper group, I think, than Pittsburgh had, personally. But I don't know. That's, it would Listen, I, I'm not going to say Pittsburgh couldn't beat them. Pittsburgh might have beat them once or twice. But you tell me this. That Rangers team in 94, many of their best players were from that Oilers group, right? True. That was yep. basically Edmonton Edmonton East. And they won a cup in 1994. So had that group stayed together in Edmonton and played the same, and you still had Coffee, and you still had Messi, and Curry, and Anderson, and Fear uh they won five cups the way it was they they got you got to tell me that they win seven cups that they have a chance at eight cups don't you think absolutely i was writing
0: about Wayne Gretzky for a what if uh last week and you realize the guy had he had 20 points in 15 playoff games in 1997 you know like it, <laughs> it, it could have gone a decade past when it did
2: yeah it, it's it's certainly, you know, seven or eight or nine years. It, would have, it's, it certainly could have gone into the, late, uh, into the late 90s. And, you know, let's say this. Even the way it went, it all fell apart. The owner, you know, Peter Pocklington was a one-man owner. Uh, he was a, had a bunch of financial issues, sold Gretzky, sold Curry, uh, you know, basically sold off all his players. Um, even after all of that. I say to you, name me the last dynasty in the National Hockey League. You say to me, Edmonton every time, don't you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I guess there's an argument to be made that it's a redefined definition um, of what a dynasty is, and then maybe the Detroit Red Wings fall into it. But it's not the same thing, where you're winning three and four cups, whatever it is, in a a row like the Islanders did. I guess Edmonton only won two in a row, but a couple of times in a row. So. It's either Detroit or it's Edmonton. It really depends on how you want to define what a dynasty is.
2: Yeah, that's fair. I mean, five in seven to me is. That's tricky. It's, it's sure, because there's no definition of dynasty. In the old days, when Montreal won five in a row, uh, the Islanders won four in a row, that was a dynasty. Uh, I, I personally would submit to you that five in seven is a dynasty. Oh, no. Doubt. Uh, you know, once, once yes, you get sure. to winning five Stanley Cups in a defined period of time here, Uh, oh boy, is that going to happen again? Detroit didn't do that.
0: So Team North America did not win the 2016 World Cup, but as you noted in the piece you wrote, going back to talk to Coach Todd McClellan and Dave Tippett, who was an assistant, and Connor McDavid, I mean, they were the talk of the tournament. What stood out from you uh, writing that piece four years after that team uh, dazzled at the
2: 2016 World Cup of Hockey? Well, I think that You know, whenever you – it's like watching the Super Bowl, guys. We sit there for two weeks and we go, man, this is going to be a great game. And then they play the game and, oh, my God, it's halftime and it's 9-3. And you go, I thought this was going to be great. And sometimes it is great, but a lot of times it's not. This one, you know, when you got Connor McDavid and Austin Matthews, who knew anything about Austin Matthews? He never played a pro Mm -hmm. game. He could have – there were some people saying he was going to fall flat in his face in that tournament. And who who could argue? I mean, you didn't know how he was going to play. Uh, the management for Team North America was so nervous about their goaltending, they petitioned to be able to have goalies that were not U23. And the league said, no, you have to. So they settled for three guys named Connor Hellebuck, John Gibson, and Matt Murray. <laughs> 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 Turns out I'd take those three goalies all day long on any team I'm building. So... I guess what I'm saying is, you know, you hoped it could be good. You hoped that team might be a little, have a little flash and dash and maybe be able to dazzle. And then they came out and and beat our expectations by a hundred times. They were faster than we thought. They scored more goals than we thought. They played a better brand of hockey. Like, nobody thought that that team would be that much fun to watch.
1: The biggest disappointment of that entire tournament was that they got eliminated on a tiebreaker and didn't get to play Canada in any meaningful way. And I think that was the game everybody wanted to see. How would Team North America have fared against Team Canada? I would have to go with Team Canada on that, but man, oh man, that would have been an incredible game to watch.
2: Yeah, that's the, the overriding sentiment from the several people I spoke to in writing that piece was, you know, that wistful, well, I guess we'll never know. <laughs> you know, and, yeah. and poor Team Europe. They made their way all the way through. They get to play Canada. And all we're talking about at that point was, eh, this is okay, but it would <laughs> be way, way better if it was Team North America. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was
0: certainly an exciting squad. All right, well, thanks for joining us, Speck. And uh, hopefully next time we talk to you, we have uh, either tangible news or who knows, maybe even some fresh new NHL action to talk about.
2: All right, boys, thanks for having me.
0: That was Mark Spector joining us from Edmonton, Alberta, where who knows, we may see some NHL games uh, in the uh, not too distant future. Anyway, stay tuned. Make sure you're checking out all of Mark's great work at sportsnet.ca, where he's done a bunch of historical stuff on the Oilers and of course continues uh, to cover the minute to minute in terms of any new information that comes his way with regard to the return of the Oilers and the NHL. All right, stick around coming up next on tape to tape rory's gonna tell us who he's got on team north america 2020 the under 23 young guns who would be wearing the black and orange if we had a tournament this september hey welcome back to tape to tape rory you have taken a look at the nhl and you have picked out four lines so 12 forwards six defense and two goalies as well as some honorable mentions for team north america 2020 these are players who are 23 or younger and of course are either i was going to say canadian or american well i guess north american we could have someone from mexico on there if there was a 21 year old mexican hotshot. we of course have someone with mexican heritage who was on the last team and i suspect will be on this team as well so why don't you run through the um four forward lines that you've thrown together for this
2: squad
1: yeah, sure. And and just to brace you, my main takeaway after I did this, so so just to give you an example, four players who graduated or are too old for this team right now that were on the 2016 version are Mark Shifley, Sean Couturier, Johnny Gaudreau, Nathan McKinnon. There are others, Aaron Ecklund, there are more. Uh, but my main takeaway was, geez, I think this team might be better than the 2016 version. I think it might be deeper. Uh, so with that in mind... Here are the four forward lines that I was able to come up with. Uh, First line is center Connor McDavid, flanked by left winger Kyle Connor and right winger Jack Eichel, who moves off of the center position where he naturally plays. Line two is centered by Austin Matthews with Mitch Marner on the right side and Matthew Kachuk on the left side. Line three is centered by Matt Barzal, with Travis Konechny on his right and Dylan Larkin on his left. And line four is centered by Anthony Sorelli, with Brock Besser on his right and Alex DeBrincat on his left. What are your initial reactions to those four lines?
0: Well, I have to say my initial reaction is, uh, I know he's in your honorable mentions, but man, could we have not found a way to get the Kachucks? On a line together.
1: (laughs) Yes, I know. And I started, I put him on, I put Brady on that team. um, And it just, as more names came on here, like, man, it's getting harder on her. I will say Dylan Larkin turns 24 at the end of July. So there's not much runway for him on this team before he'd have to find somebody else. But, I, you know, I got to say, I didn't even put Brady Kachuk as my one forward reserve because there was another player that I was trying to get on this team. And I was torn between either him or Sorelli on that fourth line. that's Pierre-Luc Dubois.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, especially with the way Anthony Sorelli asserted himself this year as a two way guy, like, you know, all the talk um, and Speck had this in his piece about this team was the coaches were clearly just going to let them go. And this was, you know, the, the spirit of this whole experiment and we won't dive into um, you know, whether it was a good idea or, or bad idea or how it was received, because obviously it was a bit of a gimmick. The idea was it was going to be fun. I mean, whether you liked yes. it or didn't like it, you kind of agreed it was It was hard to argue. It was It was not going to be fun, and, and you basically couldn't argue that by the end of the tournament. But, you know, the question would be how could these guys compete against well-seasoned two-way players? But, man, when you first told me you were doing this, I was like, God, is McDavid still eligible? And, yeah, he is. It's yeah. It's crazy to think now to get... That, that team had Conor McDavid after one year. This time you'd be getting them uh, after, what are we in, year five now. Five, so, yeah, um, yeah you, there would just be more experience all around and and a little more savvy. And, I mean, obviously scoring up and down. I mean, you, who could quibble with with those four lines? All right, what do you got on defense?
1: So on defense, uh, I split these into lefty-righties. I'm glad that it worked out that way. So defense pair number one. Quinn Hughes and Kale McCarr, please
0: Look yes. that up to
1: my veins. I want to see what that would look Just like. Just split that Calder Trophy in oh, half. Oh, God. Yeah. Uh, uh, defense pair number two is Thomas Shabbat and Charlie McAvoy. And defense pair number three is Zach Wierenski and Adam Fox. And, and I decided to make my reserve Vince Dunn.
0: Well, and I wonder, given his experience with the Stanley Cup champion St. Louis Blues a year ago, if he does find a way to squeeze in there, but...
1: You know what it could be, is Dunn starts on your top six, and much in the way Austin Matthews, like he was kind of the extra forward to start 2016, and then he worked his way up and he was playing with Connor McDavid by the end because I hadn't seen him at all. You've seen all these players, but I could see a situation where Dunn is on this team to start because of the Stanley Cup. Uh, experience that he's got but man oh man I, I think Adam Fox's rookie season flew under the radar this year yep. because of what Hughes and Makar did and so I think he's a guy that if he didn't start in this top six could quickly move into it
0: it's interesting that Speck mentioned the management led by Peter Chiarelli I believe it was Chiarelli who was the GM of the North American team in 2016 lobbied to get one goalie who was over 23, and then they end up with Hellebuck, Gibson, and Matt Murray. And you know now, uh clearly we know things have gone well for those guys. You kind of wonder if they'd be trying to lobby for the same thing this time out. Because while Carter Hart has definitely shown well, I mean this is the position that you, I think, you would worry the most about. I mean it is uh, such a volatile position in general, but. You know we don't see guys get drafted and then come in at eighteen, nineteen, twenty and dominate the league the way we do with the skater. So you've got Carter Hart as the starter and Mackenzie Blackwood as the backup. I guess we would call this the Achilles' heel. I mean, it certainly doesn't stand out the way the forward and defense groups do.
1: Yeah, and I, it didn't on that twenty sixteen team. But again, look at the names and look sure. at where they are now, and you would take those those three goalies any day of the week, right? And and I think just because of of the incredible talents right up and down the lineup above it, you look at this and say, okay, well, I guess it's the de facto weakness, but I don't think it would necessarily be a weakness. Because, well, especially
0: especially when you're only playing five games or six right, games, right?
1: Right. Um, but I but I would say like Hart has, you know, he came in with high high expectations, and he's more or less met them. I would say as an NHL goalie through a little over a year now. And, you know, to the point where Philadelphia was hitting its stride as one of the top teams in the Eastern Conference and maybe even a Stanley yep. Cup contender. And, and he was the guy. And and even if it didn't really work out for him, like I would look at this as a potential tandem or a situation where Blackwood could even take the job from Hart with a good start or two in a short tournament, because, um, you know, he was probably he was definitely thrust into the number one leaned upon job as the goalie in New Jersey faster than they would have liked because of the injury and performance issues for Corey Schneider. But he met them very, very well. And and Blackwood outperformed Hart this season behind a really a defensively porous, disappointing, struggling Devils team. He handled that very, very well. So, you know, e- even if Hart had a bad game or two, it wouldn't be shocking to see Blackwood come in and, and be able to stabilize everything. I think he has shown that he can perform behind a team that isn't the best defensively, and maybe that's what this team, North America, would play like as well. So it's the de facto weakness, like I said, but I think both of these guys have strong enough resumes that they, they could easily catch fire for five or six games or however long you needed. And really, it's not starter backup, even though it's listed that way. It's Hart is the presumed guy who would start a game one, but it could easily turn to Blackwood before long.
0: It's funny, we've touched on a couple times the fact Austin Matthews had not played an NHL game to that point, had, you know, four months earlier was the number one overall selection and, you know, he's playing his first games uh, at, I guess what was then, Air Canada Centre still now Scotiabank Place, um, not as a Toronto Maple Leaf although that debut went pretty well uh-huh. uh, <laughs> in Ottawa but just wetting people's appetite and it, it was just a unique dynamic because if you go back to before the draft when the Leafs knew they were going to be drafting first overall. He was at the world championship that year in Russia. I just happened to be there that year as well. And that was the first time I'd seen him play in person. I don't remember him having a great world juniors. I could be off base here, but I don't remember that. So all of a sudden you're watching him at the World Championship against it was him and Line a, and they both looked really good. Uh, but Matthews, like just seeing him in person, he was so big. I remember he scored a big shootout goal one game, and I was like, man, this guy looks like he can play. And then he gets to the World Cup. And I, I mean, throughout the summer, I don't I think we were very dismissive of the fact he'd be on the team. Then he is, then he starts scoring goals, and then least fans are just losing their minds.
1: it's amazing. Like he's one of those guys who um you know, you don't, definitely don't want to compare him to Mario Lemieux, but he's one of those bigger guys where he doesn't look like he's exerting energy all the time, but he is, and he's he knows where he should be, and his skills are just so, so dangerous. And I just took a quick look at his juniors, because you don't think of him that way. Like, if you see Connor McDavid, you notice him, and it sticks in your memory, but it's not necessarily the same with Austin Matthews. Uh, in his two world juniors, he had three points in five games in the first one, and then he had seven goals and 11 points in seven games in the second one. So, yeah. you know, he's always kind of been this this crazy goal scorer. And, and yeah, he was just kind of breaking in, hadn't quite broken into the leg last time uh, the World Cup was held. And that would, uh, you know, that would be the case for some of these other guys like Mitch Marner and, and Matthew Kachuk, the two guys who were on Matthew's line in on my team hadn't played in the NHL yet, weren't part of this team. Obviously, the two rookies on defense from this year, Hughes and Makar, um, weren't around last year. There's a lot of guys who were just kind of emerging or quite hadn't quite emerged yet who are, who are now cornerstones on this team. Kyle Connor, another one that hadn't played an NHL game yet in 2016, and now he's got three straight 30-goal seasons. So a lot of depth on this team. And just to mention some of the other honourable mentions. I, actually, I wanted to mention that some people might have looked at that line four with Alex Debrinkat and said, well, just move him off and put on Kachuk or Dubois or somebody because Debrinkat has been up and down. But but my thinking on that was DeBrincat and Besser. But th- those two guys are goal scorers that can always move up the line if, if chemistry isn't clicking. But Debrinkat especially has you know, history with Connor McDavid. They were major junior line mates with the Erie Otters. So there's always the possibility that DeBrincat could even go up to uh, line one. Uh, But before we move on, just some of the other honorable mentions that were left off this team that were hard to keep off, I think. Um, Defenseman Ethan Baird, John Marino, Jacob Chikrin, Sam Gerrard, Noah Hannafin. I mean, those guys are all great in their own right. They just They don't have the same kind of oomph behind them that the guys that we put on do. And then some of the forwards, again, these guys are really tough to leave off, aside from Brady Kachuk and Pierre-Luc Dubois. I love Robert Thomas of the St. Louis Blues. And, I mean, Clayton Keller, I think he would be more noticeable if he was on an NHL team that scored more than Arizona did. His rookie season was great, hasn't been able to get back there. But that, that was another name, Clayton Keller, that I had tough time leaving off of this roster.
0: All right, you may have unwittingly actually teased one of my documentary ideas. I know you had a couple in the SportsNet newsletter. So this is again uh jumping off the godsend that was the 10 hours of uh oh, of Michael great. Jordan doc. It was um and you know, to be you know, the for those who aren't familiar, the the real Rust behind this was the fact there was all this footage from the 1997-98 season, Michael Jordan's last with the Bulls that never saw the light of day for 20 years. And then once Michael Jordan came on board with the idea of this uh, doc being released to the world, um, basically, you know, he and and probably the, the league and the Bulls had to sign off on uh, on this footage being made available. So, you know, there was, as much as Michael Jordan's story is, you know, well trodden territory, there was this new element. So, I mean, that would be amazing. I would basically watch anything that came positioned as, hey, we've got all this crazy, crazy footage from literally the 1983-84 Minnesota North Stars. That would be fine with me as well. I'd be all in on that. But, you know, mostly my um my thinking here was you know there are stories out there that we know most of or um a good portion of but if we were just to go back and take a close look and even just get you know dust off some of the footage that does exist and and place it in the hands of a of a master storyteller you know, what would you be most interested in revisiting or learning a little more about? So I got some ideas. What are some of the things you put in the Sportsnet newsletter?
1: So the two big ones for me were um, just the Avalanche Red Wings rivalry. The oh, yeah. Blood feud there. I mean, there was lots of ink that was spilled about the hate between those two. I mean, there were brawls, goalie fights. You had the... Uh, brutal. Claude Lemieux, Chris Draper, check from behind. Some great playoff series. Those those two teams were just, uh, you know, we're talking about dynasties. Like they they were on the precipice there. They didn't win enough, probably. At, certainly not Colorado to get in there. But like they, if one of those teams was. At its peak, at a different time, the other one probably would have gone on a dynastic run or something. And there's just there's so much hate and great games and Hall of Famers, big names, big personalities too, just about everywhere. Yeah. Um. That I I think that would just be a, a, and a lot of years to cover. I think that would be a great one. And the other one, and we definitely know the story and the immediacy. I think though, if you put this one, if you gave this one to a documentarian, a storyteller. And really drew it out the before and after. I think Patrick Waugh's last game as a Montreal Canadian could be a really good one. You know, his rise as a player from, you know, his first games winning a Stanley Cup in 86, winning a Stanley Cup in 93 and all that to the blow up when he you know, gets mercilessly pulled. The crowd gives him the Bronx cheer at home. And he, and he says, that's it. This is my last game as a Montreal Canadian. And He's traded for peanuts a few days later. And then he goes on to win a Stanley Cup with Colorado. So it's kind of that whole thing, the before, the event, and the after. Again, a lot of really strong personalities uh, that would be involved in that story. I think you could really drill into.
0: So you mentioned Mario Lemieux as a comp, sort of, for Awesome Matthews in terms of you know, the size and the silky smoothness. It doesn't always look like they're exerting the way, uh, guys whose legs are going like cartoon characters are. I mean, A front-to-back Mario Lemieux story, where and I'm, you know, we just watched Jordan with his very generous pour of brown liquor and his cigar, (laughs) you know, being pretty straight about, you know, giving his side, anyways, of on a bunch of things. You know, one thing Mario he has a few things in common with Jordan, um, but we haven't heard a lot from Mario, and the idea of. Sitting him down in his wine cellar and just opening a couple bottles and being like, let's just talk about everything. Like, if he was willing to just be like, this is what the cancer season was like, the retirement, um, and just going all the way back to a guy who scored 133 goals in the QMJHL absurd. in the early 80s, just absurd. Um, I would love to just get, you know, relive that time where. You know, he couldn't break through being pissed off about, you know, Wayne Gretzky winning MVPs when he felt like it should have been him. And, um, you know, mostly just hearing from this giant of the game that we just haven't heard a lot from in the past 20 years.
1: You could get into the Canada Cup. You could get into even his post playing career when he helped save the Pittsburgh Penguins franchise from moving too. he did that more than once. Um, you know, there's a lot that you could get into with him and you're, you're right about, Lemieux. like we haven't heard a lot from him, um, over the years. So it seems to me like there would be plenty that you could get into there with him if he was willing to do it.
0: One of the contemporary stories I think could, you know, at least, you know, is worth an hour of diving into. We forget about it, even though we're not that far removed from it, but, Where the Chicago Blackhawks were before Taves and Kane came along, what a forgotten in the dark ages franchise that once proud, mighty team was, and just the absolute transformation after Bill Wirtz passed and uh, his son took over and new life was breathed in. That dovetails with them getting these two all time guys. In the draft in 06 in 07 and how quickly like that's still that's the rare example of the the rebuild that happens exactly as the fans expect Kane and Taves get there that first year they come pretty close to making the playoffs and if you're a Hawks fan you leave going next year we're going to get in and we're going to do something great. And they did. They got in, and their first time in the playoffs, they made the conference final and lost to a veteran-savvy Detroit team. And if you're a Hawks fan, you're going... Next year, we're going to win it. And then they did. So, you know, and then they went on and won two more. Had to make such, you know, difficult decisions along the way. Forget about Denny Savard getting fired, whatever it was, five games into the season, and Joel Quenville being brought in, and, and Patrick Kane crying, talking about uh, Savard getting axed, and, you know, Stan Bowman taking over for Dale Talon, uh, and having to purge the team after 2010 because of the cap, and, and then still coming back and winning. So, I feel like you know, given everything, you get into the backdrop of where the team was and how far it had fallen from its its glory days, and not even I mean, it hadn't won a Stanley Cup in a long time, but they were you know the Chelios, Tony Amonte, Jeremy Roenick, Chicago Stadium Blackhawks were so exciting and great, um, and in a relatively short time later, they were just such a a forgotten team. So I, I that's another one I think I'd watch.
1: And and as you're talking, it, it got me thinking, like, it, it's probably too soon to do one now. And I'm trying to think of who the best personalities would be. There's Fleury and, and Ryan Reeves would be in there, may, probably. But, like, just that first year of Vegas yep. Um, from probably pre-draft and the draft, like, the players involved and everything like that right through their run, like... Give it some time to kind of settle and fall back into memory and everything like that. And, and that could end up being a, a pretty good documentary as well. And I got to say, you know, watching the Jordan doc, watching the last dance, I guess back in the day, I was a bit of a contrarian fan. I was never a big basketball fan, but I remember specifically cheering for the Portland Trailblazers one year, becoming like a brief Utah jazz fan. Oh, a- anyone but MJ? Anyone but m j kind of thing, um you know I was you know this this is also around the time that I was being formed as a Boston Red Sox fan, and the Yankees were winning a bunch of World Series too, so I was kind of like if you were winning, I was going the other way and and I was looking back watching this Jordan documentary. It made me kind of think like especially nowadays when it's hard for in hockey circles to put together dynasties, like when these super teams do come together and happen you know, cherish them and, and, you know, root against them all you want. That's fine. That's fair game and everything like that. But there is something special about them. And even though I was rooting against the bulls in those games, you know, watching back, it's like that nostalgia still hits you like, man, you know, I would have liked to have seen them come back and try for a fourth, even though I would have probably been rooting against them. And, what could have been and all this stuff like that, that was my main takeaway was to, you know, really appreciate those teams when they arrive. Cause it's getting harder than ever to put them together.
0: Yeah. We're, we're definitely not going to see them hockey. And while I agree with everything you said, when it comes right down to it, I'll take the world where it feels like, you know, whatever 10 teams could win the cup in any given year because it creates excitement across the board. I mean, I do really miss. And I think as I get older, I am a fan maybe because of the nostalgia of those teams that like just couldn't be killed until, you know, the, the very, very end. But you forget, we'd always start those years with like 15 teams. that You, you would think they don't have a chance in hell of, you know, making the playoffs or let alone winning a championship. So I do on balance prefer the world where, you know, there's, there's really no serious barrier to becoming a championship team other than, you know, you getting in your own way, but it, it was fun. I mean, I even remember if you go back to 2009, when the Crosby Penguins uh, beat Detroit the second time yeah. around, I was still kind of going for Detroit. Cause I was like these savvy old buggers, you know, I'd love to see them just prove that they can do it again. And Nick Lidstrom, you know, was such a, a machine and I just really appreciated that idea that they would just find a way right even in the face of the new amazing talent um but you know we're not going to see the we we talked with it about spec it's a new definition of dynasty and you know now it is chicago winning three in in five seasons that you have to view that as as remarkable championship as as winning three in a row once was
1: yeah and i think back to that Red Wings, Penguins, those two cup finals, and the way you could kind of see it is, at the time, it looked like it might have been a passing of the torch, kind of like when the Islanders beat and then got beaten by the Oilers, and then the Oilers took on the dynasty uh, mantle from there. It, It felt kind of like that, where Detroit was coming to their end, they beat Pittsburgh and then they play Pittsburgh again, and it felt like okay, now now we're gonna start something here with a new team. And it didn't it didn't quite go as smoothly beyond that. Um, you know, we went through rebuild talks and everything with Crosby and Malkin, Malkin especially being traded over the years. And then they circled back and won a few times more. But that that's you know, it wasn't just like Chicago rising up and winning a Stanley yeah. Cup. That moment felt like a, a passing of the torch from one. You know, modern dynasty to possibly another.
0: I can still picture Marc Andre Fleury flying through the air to deny yes.
1: Nick Lidstrom in
0: the yep. last second. All right. Well, we'll see what happens. Right next week, it could be. Uh, some developments by that time so everyone stay tuned check out sportsnet.ca but uh, we'll definitely be back and and maybe talking about something a little more tangible uh who knows until then yes continue to follow rory on twitter at rory boylan myself at dixon on sports check out everything we're doing at sportsnet.ca and check back next week for more glass rattling hockey action on tape to tape